This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, authorities in American Samoa scramble to prevent a measles outbreak after a young girl tests positive to the highly contagious virus. And Kiwis in Australia with Pacific Heritage are celebrating a new and quicker pathway for New Zealanders to gain Australian citizenship. This has been a long fight coming, so it's awesome to finally see this day come to fruition. And the former president of Kiribati, Anote Tonga, calls on the Australian government to take more action to protect the victims of climate change. We need some kind of justice. We we don't contribute in any way to what is happening, yet we are paying the highest price. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, the remnants of a ship carrying hundreds of Australian prisoners of war from Rabaul and PNG has been discovered more than eight decades after after it was torpedoed by an American submarine. A team of deep sea survey specialists found the wreck, uh, wreck of the Montevideo Maru at the bottom of the South China Sea, just off the coast of the Philippines. The discovery added special significance to Rabaul's annual World War II memorial service which the ABC's PNG correspondent Tim Swanston attended. He joins us now. Good morning to you, Tim. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, so tell us about this ceremony. Did this recent discovery of the wreck um, make an impact on it at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, each year they hold a service for two uh, lost vessels, uh, the Montevideo Maru and a submarine that was lost in World War One. Um, but, uh, you know, the submarine was found a few years ago. And then, of course, just this discovery in the last couple of days about the Montevideo Maru just really added a lot of significance to the service. Of course, people here in Rabaul often feel a little bit forgotten and quite left out of reflection, especially on Anzac Day has such a history uh, with Australia's wartime history that, uh, you know, they do feel that it kind of deserves to be remembered. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Montevideo Maru uh, had about 980 Australian soldiers and civilians when it left here in Rabaul and was then torpedoed off the Philippines coast. So it's, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of history here and uh, it was certainly something that was uh, commemorated at the dusk service last night and at this morning's dawn service, which is uh, just wrapping up now. Oh, very interesting. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the, the history of, of this ship? Because you mentioned there it was torpedoed and I understand it was by an American submarine. Is that right? Yeah, it was a Japanese uh, transport vessel. So they were transporting prisoners of war that they'd captured after the offensive here in Rabaul uh, in East New Britain. So effectively, the the Japanese sort of la- launched a very large air, sea, and naval uh, sorry air, naval, and uh, and land. Uh, uh, capture of Rabaul. Um, now, uh, many of the Australian forces fled, but they were effectively flanked and cut off. So there were quite many prisoners that were taken in Rabaul and they were being transported, uh, of course, to Japanese territories from the uh, transport vessel. However, it's believed that 
the Americans, the Sturgeon, didn't know um, that there were prisoners of war on board. Um, and that's when they torpedoed the ship. Um, it's Australia's worst, uh, largest, rather, maritime disaster. So, uh, you know, of course, it was very, very devastating for those families. And there have been calls for a very long time um, to try and find the wreck of the ship. Um, and fairly extraordinary that they were able to do that just um, at the weekend and very, very, you know, coincidental timing ahead of Anzac Day. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and, and you're there, Tim, in, in Rabao. Um, have those families that you mentioned with those connections to the Montevideo Maru, were, were they there? Did you get a chance to speak with them at all? Well, many of them have moved on um, because, you know, of course, we're talking about 81 years ago, you know, when the ship uh, went down. Um, and, uh, you know, so there are some family members in Australia that I did uh, speak to. Um, as well. One one chap, Jim Burrows, he was a former coast watcher and a veteran. His elder brother was captured and on board the Montevideo Maru. Um, so, you know, of course, he, he sort of spoke about effectively kind of the, the closure that this brings. But, but moreover, you know, kind of if anything, he was glad that the ship went down so that perhaps his brother wasn't doing, you know, years of years of hard labour and possibly even suffering a, a worse fate. So, you know, there's fairly mixed emotions, of course, across the board. You know, while there's that element of closure, there's also that element of, well, you know, they've just discovered the grave side of very many people. Um, so it's a, you know, while it does kind of close one chapter, it's still, still, you know, of course, very solemn for reflection. Um, but of course, for people here in Rabaul, you know, for, for that history to be remembered is, of course, quite significant. Significant. Mm, and, and considering that, Tim, are, are there any local plans there in Rabaul for a memorial or some way to, to mark this now that the Montevideo um, Maru has been found? Yeah, so the Dusk Service is actually held by a um, memorial there, they call the Lark Force Memorial, um, just down by the foreshore here at Rabaul. And um, that that service last night was just extraordinary. It was very beautiful as the sun went down here on the Rabaul foreshore. Um, you know, by that memorial. So uh, just just something absolutely extraordinary. We're here at the dawn service this morning, which is being held uh, by the Cenotaph in what was formerly um, the main street of town, of course, before the uh, volcanic ash destroyed the town in 1994. So again, another very beautiful, very solemn service here this morning. Mm. And you are there in, um, or about him. You mentioned there the, the volcanic eruptions. Um, has that impacted any of those memorial sites um, there? I know the town was devastated back in 1994. Are there any legacies, any remnants of that destruction there today? Um, well, yeah, of course. I mean, not not a great deal of many buildings survived, but, um, you know, there, there has been some, you know, of course, there's lots of relics lying around from World War II that still somehow managed to survive. Mm. You know, out the front of the New Guinea Club, there's an old Japanese tank as well, um, which is honestly quite a, quite a yeah. sight to see. So there are a few remnants around, and of course, you know, the tunnels and that sort of thing that um, the Japanese built as well are still here. So um, not a great deal did survive of course, sort of this part of town, this sort of main part of town here. Um, but that what did is, is honestly pretty extraordinary and, um, you know, something that, uh, yeah, something that, that really does showcase, I guess, the historical significance of Rabaul. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you for bringing us those those insights and, and that very um, solemn but, but interesting story there, uh, Tim. You're welcome. That was ABC's 
BNG correspondent Tim Swanston. He was speaking there about that discovery of um, of the ship, the Montevideo Maru, in um, that was traveling from Rabao in PNG, carrying hundreds of Australian prisoners of war. That wreck was just recently discovered after more than eight decades after it was torpedoed by an American submarine. And staying in Rabao in PNG, that discovery of that uh, Japanese World War transporter ship has been met with ex- excitement and emotion, particularly for families of those who died on board. Susan McGrade, oh, Susan McGrade, sorry, is the secretary of the Rabao Historical Society and spoke with the ABC's Caroline Atiraman about the ship's findings. When war broke out and Rabao was captured, they too were um, captured and, and put on a, a ship to go to a prisoner of war camp in Japan. And along the way, an American submarine, the Sturgeon, uh, torpedoed it, never knowing the captain, un- totally unaware that there were prisoners of war on board. He, he would, he would, it, it's a, a travesty to him because I've read his story and uh, he never knew that there were prisoners of war locked down in the hatches. So these 1,000 53 people went to their watery graves on very sad situations and the families never knew what had happened to their loved ones. With the finding of the Monte Video Maru last week, what does this mean for families who have been waiting for 80 years to find out what happened to their loved ones? I think it will be a very mixed emotion for the descendants because they will be probably relieved that the ship has been located, but they'll also be very emotional. It will churn up all the memories of how they you know, grew up through their lives with their missing fathers or brothers or sons. Well, probably nobody's alive now who's lost a son on board, but there are direct descendants that still uh, remember how Uncle So-and-so didn't come home from the war or their father didn't come home from the war, the war, or their brother didn't come home from the war. So this will just stir up emotions, but it, I hope it will be some sort of closure for them. But you have to remember that for many years after the war, nobody talked about it. Nobody knew what had happened to their loved ones. So they kept quiet. They were pretty much quietened down. They they just had to suffer their, you know, when there was an Anzac parade or they still didn't know where their loved ones were. So to know now and to locate the ship, I hope it brings back some sort of closure for them. Rubal was an important place during World War One and World War Two. Why is it important to still remember those times during those big wars? Correct. Uh, Rubal was the host to some significant historical events. I mean, we talk about Gallipoli, we talk about Kokoda, but Rabaul was where it all started. The first Australian and New Guinean casualties of the Great War happened at Itapaka. You know, Australia had a responsibility to the British when war was declared to defend the invasion of, the, of their colonies in the Pacific. And so World War II was an Australian-mandated territory. And people don't realise this is Australian soil. I'm not trying to be colonial. It's a fact. It is a fact that this was Australian soil. 
and Rabaul was obliterated in World War Two. I think there were two or three buildings left standing. I know the home of the Rabaul Historical Society was one of them. And yet people don't talk about it. We lost a third of our population, our local population, as well as the suffering of the Chinese that were left behind, that were brought over by the Germans in World War One. We had a complete decimation here. And yet people don't talk about it. No one knows. No one talks about it in Australia. Nobody talks about it here. So I make it my business and the small group of us on the Rebel Historical Society make it our business to pass on that history so that our young ones know. And, uh, you know, we have a growing tourism industry here and it's important for the tour guides to understand because a lot of people come and they read books and so they want to know where this all happened and a lot of the young ones don't even know what happened. Susan McGrade, so do you think young people of today, both in Australia and Papua New Guinea, know about this important history? No, it's it's a travesty. I mean, we have Kokoda in our curricula, we have Gallipoli, but where I think it's about time that we recognize the contribution we made in Rabaul to the war history of, of the world. And uh, it shouldn't be forgotten, and it should be taught at school, both Australia and Papua New Guinea, because whether people think it's colonial history or not, it happened on land in this country, in Papua New Guinea, right here where I'm standing, in my bungalow at uh, Rabaul and overlooking Simpson Harbour. It happened under our feet. I mean, it was one of the second to Berlin. We had more bombs on it than anywhere else in the Pacific. We really did do it tough. So I, I just don't understand why there's a myopia, a, a blind spot, some people call it. I can't answer that. I, people talk about the volcano and the significance of eruptions, but the reason why Rabaul survives is because of the, the protected harbour. But that's why we, we keep surviving because the harbour is so deep and so protected for the big ships. And that's exactly why Germans colonised and Japanese wanted it and the Australians because of this wonderful harbour. Yet we don't seem to, the Rabaul people or the Rabaul authorities, especially the Kokopo administration, don't seem to appreciate it. It's very sad. That was Susan McGrade, Secretary of the Rabaul Historical Society, speaking there with Caroline Tierman. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Health authorities in American Samoa are scrambling to contain a possible outbreak of measles after an eight-year-old girl tested positive to the incredibly contagious virus. To get the latest on the potential outbreak, we're joined now by American Samoa's territorial epidemiologist, Scott Annecy. Mr. Annecy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so can you tell us what is the situation at the moment after this um, first positive uh, finding? Uh, has the measles virus been contained? At the moment, we are reporting one positive case still, which was the original index case. And we are reporting 29 probable cases that have been identified through clinical case definitions. 
29 probable cases. I mean, that, that's quite a lot. Um, how long will it take to identify whether they are positive or not to measles? So one of the issues that we're running into is uh, the capacity to confirm using laboratory testing locally. We're currently, we're, as part of our response efforts, we're currently trying to uh, make sure that we do have the capacity. Until we do, right now, we're labeling probable cases based on clinical signs and symptoms and the recommendation of the clinical team. At the moment, we are sending off uh, the samples that have been tested for these probable cases uh, to Hawaii State Laboratory. Uh, we have uh, call with them later on today to discuss some of the turnaround times. But we'll know a lot more about this outbreak uh, by the end of the week, as now when the tests come back and, and we know where we're at in the in the outbreak, we'll be able to have more information then. Mm. Are you treating those probable cases as um, positive cases? I mean, what, what steps are, are you taking to contain, contain the virus? Yes, definitely. So when we identify... Uh, cases in the community through contact tracing, through uh, we've established a 24-hour hotline through our health centers and, and healthcare providers. The self-isolation of the cases is then recommended. It, it depends on the recommendation of the medical personnel. Either they're going to be uh, recommended to come into the health facility for care, at which point they will then be in isolated rooms and isolated uh, infection control protocols will take place. Out in the community, if symptoms are deemed to be mild, then self isolation at home with recommendations for the caregivers as well as for the families will be given and um, they will be followed up through our field investigation teams. As part of our current response, uh, we have closed all of the schools. Uh, we started the first round of closing the early childhood education centers, as well as the child daycare centers. Uh, we are now moving into all of the elementary schools, uh, closing them and wrapping up our, our mass vaccination campaign. Oh, wow. So, so all the schools will be closed. Do you know for how long? At the moment, because it goes through the government, um, the, the government declaration, the tentative date for reopening is uh, May 12th. However, we are hoping that if we continue to do the mass vaccination campaigns, as well as isolating of probable cases at home, that we'll be able to stem the transmission in the community and be able to have a mechanism of reopening. So one of the mechanisms of reopening the schools is the vaccination rates in the community. As such, all schools are required by law to uh the vaccination uh, status of all the children that are enrolled in schools above uh, grade one. Right now, we've closed all the elementary schools as we have a targeted population of those that may need their immunization. So the target is to fully immunize all school-age children above the, the age of one for the schools to reopen, as well as we're providing boosters to the adult staff. Now, the recommendations for the younger children is a little bit different because during an outbreak, one of the CDC recommendations is to lower the age of the first dose to six months. Because our, our daycare centers operate for care from newborn all the way to six years old, the opening of those will be highly dependent on the spread in the community. As for the other schools, there is there are mechanisms in place that we have so that we can do a reopening. But we're, we're still a ways from now until that point. The, the main response now is clinical investigations, contact tracing to identify 
active cases that are symptomatic in the community, get them tested, get them cared for, get them isolated and try and stem the flow of the transmission in the community. Mm, yes, I, I mean, it sounds like it's a critical moment uh, there in, in the response to this potential outbreak. Um, is, is enough being done, do you believe? Uh, have you been surprised? I mean, 29 potential cases, it seems like it, it has the potential to be moving quite fast, isn't it? Well, the caveat of that is that if you look, you find as we ramp up investigations and actively search for cases in the community, we're going to find them. And so at this point in, in, in the response, we're expecting large clusters and, and, and large pockets of those that are in the community because now we're doing our community investigations village by village. Whereas if we just counted the numbers of cases that came into the health centers, that rate would be relatively low because they would only reflect those that are serious enough to seek health care and not reflect those that have mild symptoms or light symptoms that are are managing themselves at home. And so at, at this point, the numbers, we are expecting the numbers to increase. We are in, expecting more cases that we will be finding in the community just because we're going into an active surveillance mode. Mm. And Mr. Anasi, uh, considering the the potential spread, does this mean that the that first case, that index case, was um, in the community for, for quite some time with symptoms? Well, the investigations are currently uh, underway with that. Uh, when the the first case did present to the health center, isolation protocols were advised as well as containment at the house. We were under kind of under the radar for for measles uh, because there were some suspected cases that have popped up previously. So we basically implemented the protocols with this first case until such time we were able to get the test results back. Mm, okay. Uh, and do we know how that, um, I understand it. There, there are reports that it was a young girl that tested positive. Do we know how she's faring? Uh, symptoms, uh, the, the, that child uh, that was the first case is... Um, um, in good health now, no complications. Uh, symptoms lasted uh, uh, roughly a, a week or so, uh, self-reported, but was isolated, is doing well. Um, all the cases that are active now that are symptomatic are all stable and doing well. Uh, we're still we're still evaluating them. Um, as, as as you know, with uh, measles, the first uh, four to five days is 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 really crucial. And so right now the clinical team are evaluating them. But so far, uh, all are stable and doing well. If you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia, my name is Priyanka Srinivasan, and we're speaking to American Samoan territorial epidemiologist uh, Scott Annecy. Uh, we're speaking about that first confirmed case of measles, and and as you said, Mr. Annecy, a potential twenty nine suspected cases. You're still awaiting um, tests to confirm those. And, and you mentioned earlier about the vaccination rates, which um, the government is is focusing on to try and boost those levels. Um, we've seen elsewhere that the vaccination rates have actually slowed, particularly around measles and, and other vaccines uh, because of the pandemic. Is that what you're seeing there in American Samoa? Do you suspect that some of these um, vaccinations, particularly for, for children, for babies, uh, have have sort of been delayed? 
We have seen that the scheduling has been a bit off due to the pandemic. I mean, just within the last year, we're, we're kind of getting out of that. But as, as you know, with uh, Well Baby, there's structured um, vaccinations at certain times. And we have seen a bit of a disruption in that just due to the pandemic. However, we are... Um, seeing that in 2019, American Samoa had a measles outbreak. And during that time, there was also vaccination campaigns that have gone out into the community. As such, those that may have uh, warranted a immunization now have already gotten it. So we're really focusing on that new age. Now that we're lowering the, the first dose age to six months, we have a new portion of the population that needs to, to be vaccinated. And so that's the goal right now is to identify the targeted uh, population to vaccinate them and see where our rates are. Currently, we're over 90%. We're roughly around 91% vaccination rate for the territory. And so we're, we're, we're pretty hopeful that we can continue to increase that number within the next couple of weeks. Oh, well, that is good news. I mean, you know, when we talk about measles outbreaks, there is a level of fear because I understand it is a highly contagious virus. Is that right, Mr. Anisi? Can you tell us more about this disease? Yes, definitely. Uh, we've seen uh, the, the literature has shown that uh, in low vaccination or unvaccinated populations that one person can spread it to as many as 18 people. Um, we've also seen in, in some cases with uh, moderate vaccination numbers that they can spread it to as many as nine or 10. Uh, currently, we are responding uh, in worst case scenario as if that we would have widespread community transmission at a very, very high rate, which is why we have shut down the schools. We are limiting gatherings, especially those uh, for children. We are going out into the communities and working with them um, because the high, the highly transmittable or the aggression of this virus is very, very high. And so the response has to match. Mm, yes. And, and it can be deadly, particularly if, if young, young children, babies contract it. I mean, we, we saw that very clearly in Samoa in, in 2019, um, when it had that devastating, um, outbreak of measles that, that, um, hit many, many families. I mean, is that in the back of your mind as an epidemiologist there in American Samoa, um, Mr. Anisi? And uh, uh, is there a potential for this to spread outside the borders of American Samoa? Uh, yes, definitely. Travel advisories and alerts have already gone out to all South Pacific countries that are neighboring us, as well as to U.S. destinations. All destinations that have travel in and out of the territory have been alerted that we are reporting a measles case. The potential to spread is very, very high and likely. And I would imagine that uh, most of our counterparts within the different countries have uh, travel advisories, not only for their um, their population, but just for also others that may be traveling in. So the current alert is for travelers that are entering the territory that we will be monitoring those uh, and to request those that to check their immunization statuses before uh, they enter the territory. Now, there's no requirements as such because we have community transmission. But I would imagine that um, our neighboring partners and countries are working on some travel advisories as well um, at the moment. Yes, yes. Well, I, I hope um, that you are able to contain this outbreak. Um, all the best and thank you for taking time to speak to us uh, this morning on Pacific Beat. 
Thank you very much as well. Uh, you guys have a wonderful day and uh, let me know if you need anything else. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, that was American Samoa's territorial epidemiologist, Scott Anisi, and he was speaking there about that one confirmed measles case there in American Samoa. And as he said, there were uh, up to 29 other suspected cases. They're still awaiting um, positive readings, lab results from those cases to confirm whether they are measles cases or not. Uh, in the meantime, schools there, elementary schools and, and um, young daycare centers have also been closed. And those who are suspected cases have been asked to isolate. Inzane Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia, hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league, featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Now it's time to find out what's been making news around the Pacific. And to do that, we're joined by Kyle Evans, as always. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Now let's start in Papua New Guinea. Um, there's been a concerning case of, of prison inmates being killed while trying to escape. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, that's right. So uh, 16 uh, were actually shot dead by authorities uh, while one is in hospital. Uh, meanwhile, seven are actually still on the run. Uh, and that's according to the commissioner of the country's correctional services. Now, this is reported by The National, uh, and the incident took place at West New Britain's uh, Lucky Mata prison uh, after about a total of 24 prisoners escaped after cutting the fence at the back of the facility. Very interesting. Um, do we know any more details about um, these prisoners still on the run? And, and also what led up to the shooting as well? Do we know? Uh, just simply the fact that they escaped, essentially. Yeah, I, look, I, I don't know the details um, uh, of, of exactly what happened, but I imagine they were probably told to stop and, 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 and didn't. That's, I guess, usually ten, how escapes usually happen, I suppose. But um, but what we do know is the search is continuing. Uh, police have appealed to the public uh, and families um, if they've gone there to, to surrender them, if they can. Um, and what's interesting is as well, it's actually the second prison escape uh, in the last six months at this particular prison. Uh, 26 prisoners escaped uh, back in October and uh, 24 of whom are still on the run. Mm, Yes, an interesting development there. The reason I asked about what led up to it is because, you know, prisoners do have rights as well. Part of their rights is, is, is to be protected and to serve out their sentences. And if their sentence wasn't for capital punishment, uh, then, you know, their, their deaths at the hand of police should should be questioned. So I wonder if there will be um, any further investigations of, as to what happened, what led up to these um, prisoners' deaths. Um, it is a shame that they escaped, obviously, and, and the potential risks that puts to the communities surrounding there and obviously fears if these prisoners are um, do pose a risk to the communities, but also, you know, we live in a, you know, around the Pacific, we live in countries where um, prisoners' rights should also be maintained. So I'm, I'm, I'd be very interested to follow this more closely and see if there are any investigations and find out, yes, what do, did lead, lead to these killings.
Um, now to some sporting news. The Fijian, Fijiana Indura were forced to rely on strangers for food during their trip. Well, this sounds like sporting news, but not quite. Um, <laughs> this was their trip to Queensland over the weekend. Why, why could this possibly be? Yeah, this is a, a really... Um Really concerning one in some ways. Uh, the team was, from what I understand, forced to rely on Brisbane families to feed them uh, ahead of their clash with the Reds due to financial troubles uh, that have befallen Fiji rugby. So this is reported by the Sydney Morning Herald, and it comes as uh, FIU admitted yesterday to uh, having some uh, quote-unquote cash flow challenges. Uh, and I actually had to thank the Brisbane rugby community as well as Rugby Australia for stepping in to make sure the players were taken care of after a restaurant refused to continue to feed the team uh, oh, while they were away. Uh, I understand there's a training centre in uh, in northern New South Wales out at Lennox Heads as well that is also chasing a six-figure invoice uh, from FIU too. I mean, this is very, very um, disappointing to to hear. Do we know exactly how much money um, is alleged to be owed by Fiji, Fiji Rugby Union? Well, according to the article, uh, Fijian media reported the FIU was set to post uh, about a $900,000 loss uh, for the 2022 financial year. Now, I imagine that would have been a potentially a roll-on from COVID or, uh, as well, so that some of that might have been uh, as expected. Um, and Fiji uh, and, and Rugby Australia actually had to pay the catering bill at the Brisbane Holiday Village uh, on behalf of the Fijiana and Drua. And from what I understand, all this came to light after a Brisbane woman actually put out a call on social media for meals uh, uh, the night before the, the team's crunch game against the Reds so, so they could so they could be fed. Yes, well, I mean, it, it, as you said, there is a, a big loss, almost $1 million, or, or I guess, yes, a loss that, that the FRU has reported. Um, but still, these are players playing for the national team, the Fijiana and Drua, and, and women, women players. There's been a lot of um, attention made on, on the inequalities between the female sports, sports women, sports players, and, and the men's. I do wonder, I haven't heard of a situation like this affecting the men's team. Mm. And I wonder if um, there are some, some questions around gender inequality that are, that are at play here, isn't it, Kyle? I think so. there's some very valid ones, yes. Yeah, so um, yeah, another, another story to keep an eye on. And, and I'm sure there are some people at FRU thinking very long and hard about what's, what's befallen um, the Fijiana Andrua while they're here. And, and it's in- worth pointing out as well. I mean, the Fijiana Andrua, I mean, these are the reigning champions. You know, yes, exactly. Um, effectively Super W being billeted or, yes. or you know or being being fed by you know the people on the streets. So. Yeah, it's quite it's quite a scandal. Um, I'd love to hear what you think, uh, listeners. Do get in touch, ABC Pacific. Do you think there is some sort of gender inequality at play here? Do you think this would uh, happen to the male players, uh, rugby rugby teams, or otherwise? Uh, do get in touch. Um, now, finally, there's a story about royalty coming to the shores of Vanuatu. Who exactly is it? Uh, Princess Mary of uh, of Denmark has uh, has touched down uh, in the Pacific. So, uh, yeah, exciting, exciting news there. If you're a fan of the uh, fan of the royals, uh, reported by the New Daily, she's there on a special mission to highlight the consequences of climate change, uh, and she will also visit Fiji before returning to Australia in what I understand will be her first official visit. Uh, her first official engagement in over a decade. Interesting. Do we know exactly what she'll be doing there? 
So she'll be promoting a number of a uh, number of greens initiatives led by uh, Danish businesses. Uh, I understand she'll also visit some cyclone hit areas uh, and, and and visit some crisis response teams as well. And uh, in Fiji, some of her work will centre around uh, sexual and gender based violence. Okay, well, very interesting. Lots of royal visits to the Pacific uh, recently. Uh, thank you, Kyle, for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. Don't go anywhere, though. We'll be bringing you more stories coming up, including what, uh, why Kiwi Pacifica communities here in Australia are celebrating changes to Australia's citizenship pathways. It's particularly for New Zealand's uh, New Zealand citizens, uh, making it easier for them to come and live and stay permanently as Australians. We'll be hearing from what uh, some Pacific Islanders thinking think about that coming up on the show. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. The former president of Kiribati, Anote Tong, has been in visiting the Torres Strait Islands to see the impact of climate change on people there. He's also calling on the Australian government to take more action to protect people living there and in the Pacific. He spoke to the ABC's Patricia Cavellis. Well, I, I'm seeing the, um, the, the same degree of vulnerability. I had the opportunity to fly over the islands and so um, just being in the island doesn't really give, a, give you a good picture. But once you fly over, you see that the landmass is not really a huge landmass. It's uh, really just a piece of land where the uh, uh, the people uh, live. And then the rest is really swamp marshland, you know, very vulnerable to flooding. And so the level of the islands is very much like our own. And so the, uh, the rising sea level undoubtedly would be one of the greatest threats that they are facing in the similar way that we are. Is Australia failing people in the Torres Strait and and uh, subsequently the wider Pacific? Well, it's um, uh, I, I guess I've been making that point over the years, coming here and trying to uh, speak to the, the your, your successive governments, and uh, of course the, the uh, uh, late last year I had the opportunity to talk with the incoming government, and of course I admire and I applaud the, uh, the commitment to. Uh, cutting down emissions to zero by 2050. But of course, the real challenge has always been the, the high volume of uh, export of uh, fossil fuel, especially coal and gas. And so whilst uh, that does not reflect, it's not reflected in the domestic level of emissions, it actually contributes to the global emissions, which of course is the cause of what, what is happening on climate change. Yeah, you, you mentioned that you applaud and you have applauded that we have this this new government. Uh, they recently passed, well, two climate change bills. Uh, they didn't ban coal and gas in the last one, despite the Greens first demanding it, and then, of course, a, a deal was brokered. Were you disappointed by that? Well, I must say I am, because we are running out of time, and I think the uh, successive reports of the IPCC confirmed this, and the, the Secretary General of the United Nations is calling for urgent action. I think the latest... Uh, uh, synthesis report, which came out uh, in March uh, this year, is yet another uh, testament of the uh, how urgent the problem is. And uh, it's got to be done with all sincerity, understanding that uh, we are running out of time. And so urgent action is needed. And so it's not about, uh, you know, passing the buck around. I, I know that uh, the dependence of uh, Australia on the revenue from the oil and gas, uh, the coal and gas, but there's got to be a roadmap to transition. As far as I know, there doesn't appear to be a very firm roadmap for Australia to transition away from the dependence on, on revenue derived from the export of uh, fossil fuel.
As part of your trip, I know you've met with the Torres Strait Islander elders who are bringing a case against the Australian government over claims Canberra has failed to prevent climate change. How central will the courts become in claims over climate, in your view? Well, I think the, um, there, has, there has to be a court of adjudication to, to determine the justice of what is happening globally. I think uh, in our case, I, you, of course, you must be aware that uh, as a region which has been endorsed by many, most of the governments in the, in, in the world, the, um, there is a call, a resolution that the UN to, to uh, seek the, um, the International Court of Justice uh, advisory opinion on what is happening with uh, climate justice. And so we need some kind of justice. We, we don't contribute in any way to what is happening, yet we are paying the highest price. And so the action that's happening here between the islanders and the federal government is really the kind of action that we would have loved to have done to uh, the countries that have been making this contribution to our demise. China has been increasingly active diplomatically in the Pacific, including, of course, in Kiribati. Do you have concerns about offers to invest economically in the region? Well, China is just another country wanting to have uh, a, a influence. Of course, um, you know, the, I, I understand the strategic um, jostling that's going on between the, the Western Alliance and China. Uh, but of course, these are not central issues central to our own concerns for of security. Climate change remains. If China were to come forward and say, come on, we'll, we'll help you solve the problem. I can see most of the Pacific countries joining in that because that is our security concern. Isn't development and investment a positive, though, for lots of communities in the short term? Isn't that the big dilemma? Well, it, um, of course, we must live on a daily basis, but we, if, you, if the, the wise people would look beyond that, have the vision to look in the longer term and not, not forget it because... Um, just thinking about today is what what is causing the problem. We're talking about pulling out this in order that uh, we can balance our budget, in order that we can amass the power and the uh, the wealth, and forgetting that in the process we are actually uh, plundering this planet and destroying it. And this is exactly what is happening. We must have a longer term view apart from dealing with the daily uh, the daily challenges of life. Uh, Senator and Foreign Minister Penny Wong set out her vision of strategic equilibrium this week. Do you think that's possible? Uh, I think there has to be something which balances out everything, okay? Um, there is, uh, at the moment, there's such tension around different parts of the world. We, we're hearing about the potential outbreak of war between China attacking Taiwan, okay? That would bring in the United States and uh, presumably Australia. Well, that, those are not uh, things that would give your mind, uh, make you give your mind uh, at, at rest. What's happening in Europe? What's happening in the Middle East? You know, we're watching all of this while you know we're just the grass and the, while the elephants are playing, and it's not comfortable to be like that. Okay, so um, you know, how do we deal with this? We have there has got to be better solutions. The British Foreign Secretary has just toured PNG, the Solomon Islands and Samoa to announce the UK's commitments to that region, the Indo-Pacific. Should he have visited Kiribati? Well, they left us in 1979 when they gave us independence and uh, we we finished and the, the, the phosphate was exhausted, all right? I, we were, if you look at the Pacific, you will see that it's actually divided. Uh, the Northern Pacific remains with the United States, and they have very special relations with the United States. The uh, Polynesia have very special relations with New Zealand. Uh, Papua New Guinea, of course, has uh, special relations with um, Australia. 
<clears throat> but the former British colonies have remained, and Solomon Islands and Kilbris are two of the countries that were former British colonies. Okay, and so yeah, I think um, uh, it, maybe the, the British should come and see what what happened. You know, they tested uh, the nuclear bombs in, in Kilbris, so maybe they, they they should be coming around to see what's happened since how we are doing. And that was former Kiribati President Anote Tong speaking there to the ABC's Patricia Cavellis. A new visa pathway will make it easier for New Zealanders to become Australian citizens in a move celebrated by many Kiwi Pacifica families living here. New Zealanders who are on a special category visa can apply for the citizenship without becoming permanent residents first. Uh, permanent residents first, that is, if, they, if they've lived in Australia for at least four years. Lefao Ali'i, Dr. Dion Inari, a lecturer at Auckland University of Technology, says it will allow New Zealanders with Pacific heritage in Australia to send their kids to uni, to access disability support and cast their votes in elections. I'm really ecstatic about this announcement. Uh, this has been a long fight coming, so it's awesome to finally see this day come to fruition. Have you gone through the experience yourself? Uh, yes, so I was I was born in New Zealand and we migrated to Australia in 2000 uh, before the law had changed to make it harder for New Zealand uh, citizens to become Australian citizens in 2001. So having been very well connected to the New Zealand, different New Zealand communities in Australia, uh, I'm very well aware of the, the struggle to, um, to get to this day particularly when we had a lot of New Zealand citizens who were ineligible for the student loan. And we also had a lot of New Zealand citizens in Australia who were uh, deported back to New Zealand for some really minor crimes. Yeah, so seeing uh, faster pathways to citizenship is a, is a victory to many Kiwis in Australia. So you applied for citizenship before these changes came into effect in 2001. Can you give us an idea of how easy or difficult it was back then? Uh, absolutely, yes. So in the year 2000, I, I went as a kid uh, and my mother became an Australian citizen and then all of us as her children uh, automatically gained citizenship. Uh, I now look to other Kiwis who had to go through different citizenship tests in the last 10, 15 years. And they're quite unfair, as I know many Australian citizens who were born and raised in Australia wouldn't be able to pass the test. <laughs> so you just see the difference. Yeah, you just see the unfairness in, in the process. And it's quite expensive as well, isn't it? Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah, we've seen um, Kiwi families pay over $10,000 up to over $10,000 uh, to secure their citizenship. So yeah, back in my mum's day, it was only $50. And then the rest of us got it free as their children. And then obviously, in those past years, Kiwis living in Australia have access to certain services such as Medicare. So that means they can visit the doctor for free. Um, and some, you know, some other things like Centrelink payments for um, childcare and things like that. But there are many other things that um, New Zealanders can't access, such as the NDIS scheme. Have you heard of families that were negatively affected by that? 
Yeah, we have heard. Uh, I had known uh, Kiwi families back in Australia who had to come back to New Zealand because they were ineligible for certain uh, disability payments and disability uh, assistance. I look back and I think of the many different uh, Kiwi advocates uh, in Australia who really lobbied for this, and some are, are not alive today to see the fruits of of this new ruling. And yeah, again, it's it's an awesome victory that. Um, hopefully a lot of uh, Kiwis in Australia take advantage of. And that was Dr. Don Dion Inari, a lecturer at Auckland University of Technology, speaking there to reporter Dubrovka Volodair. And with that, we come close to the end of Pacific Beat for your Tuesday morning. Thank you for your company. A reminder of our top story, we headed to Rabao to speak to our ABC correspondent there, Tim, Dr. Tim Swanston, who was chatting to us about the uh, discovery of a World War II wreckage, a ship, in fact, that was found off the coast of Philippines. It was a ship carrying hundreds of Australian prisoners of war from or about in Papua New Guinea. Today is, of course, Anzac Day, and as uh, Tim was telling us, uh, there were a lot of commemorations about that one wreckage and the discovery there today to market. If you want to revisit that story and anything else, you can head to the ABC Pacific website. News is next, and I'll be back joining you tomorrow morning. Until then, have a lovely day.